Hi guys, and welcome to this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. I'm super excited for this episode because oftentimes when we think of feminists or feminism, it's usually singular and our guest this week has dared to challenge that thought and we explore the concepts of feminisms and feminists in a more global context. She is an astute scholar who is a historian, educator and a speaker even though she might not identify wholly with the last version of herself. Jacqueline Bethel Mogwe, um, we sit down and we talk about her journey to arriving at academia and where we go from identity to the cultural crisis and also immigration which is faced for the African diaspora. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Kisao. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, Jacqueline. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to be here this morning. Amazing. Yeah, well, it's morning your time and afternoon (laughs) my time. The joys of technology. Three times qualified. You've got a degree, a master's and a PhD. So technically you should be Dr. Jacqueline Bethel Mugwe. You are a historian, feminist, educator and I say speaker, but I'm not sure if you identify as a speaker. I shall be reflecting on that. Yes, I would add speaker to my side gig on there. Amazing. Amazing. Well, for anyone who doesn't know you or who hasn't come across your work, because it's quite vast, your passion, well, your your sort of main gig is being an assistant professor of African cultural studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yes, indeed it is. And alongside that, you've written a few books, articles, journals around, I guess, which is a perfect intersection to this show around sort of Africans, African diaspora, and what that actually means. Yes, indeed. And some of the main issues that I really explore with that is political actions, religious beliefs, bodily practices, and how these really become key spaces, essentially critical spaces in which diverse forms of African representation and self-identity can sort of play out or be on show. Amazing. Let's talk about, I guess, the overarching thing here, which is cultural norms, cultural values, which is a big part of your work and how that informs our version of being as Africans today in the world. Because there's a lot, there's a lot, right? Yeah. To unpack when it comes to that. Yeah. And there's many um, lenses and perspectives that you can employ to answer that question. And 
you know, one of the things that I absolutely love about my job and doing my research is to be able to explore these questions about identity and representation in very different way through very different lenses. And one of the ways in which I explore this question is through political actions and how women in particular in the past and also in today's African continent have deployed various forms of political authority. But this question about, or this connection between women and political power and self-identity and representation was something that I approached originally through an African feminist lens. So essentially, I was taking all of these different classes when I was in graduate school, and one of them was focusing specifically on African understandings of feminism and different understandings of gender equality. And one of the things that I discovered when I was doing research on this question about women and political power and how it really reflects this diverse or this really colorful rainbow of the different ways in which African women have expressed political authority. And I discovered in my own research that a lot of the women's political actions were not very overt. They were more subtle, but I realized that they were making long lasting changes. And some of the spaces that I was looking at, particularly spaces in which you had women that were the political elites sort of traveling around and dominating these spaces, they were very subtle in which they exerted their political identity and expression. But a lot of their ideas about gender, political identity, and the nation still resonates today. And so as a historian, I'm looking at these issues, uh, particularly in the 1960s and early 1970s in Cameroon. And I just realized that, you know, it was just so important for me to always be making a connection between the present and the past, because a lot of the issues that occur about political identity and nationhood in Cameroon today very much reflects these long-standing conversations that women were a part of. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. I think as a people, and I generalize people being the continent of Africa, as we know, is quite diverse and varied. I guess identity, and I think with the pandemic and people having time to to have these discussions more closely and us getting to this intersection of understanding generational baggage, that is now at the fore, and without using the word woke, right, <laughs> of a generation of woke individuals who are now 
tackling some of these subject matters, especially when it comes to personal growth and how we are hoping to transition into, I guess, a better version of, you know, what we were before. But in terms of values and norms, you know, let's tick off the, I guess, the one career version, which is be a doctor, be a lawyer. You know, your career choices are limited to said careers. And working through that, even in your personal experience of your father's expectation of you and landing up where you are now, what does that mean for the young African child who dares to walk the path less taken? Excellent question. I'll probably answer it in a non-traditional manner. So probably divulging too much, but this is something actually that my therapist and I were actually talking about. We were just talking about issues about race and how it impacts the daily life of a woman of, of, of color, particularly me. So she's Black, I'm Black. And so we had this really unexpected, very powerful therapeutic session on race and identity. And so, oh, this generational baggage is something that actually came up during the conversation when I was talking about what does it mean for me, someone born in Cameroon, who has spent a lot of her life in the U.S. and, you know, grew up really grappling with what's my identity, particularly my Black identity, my Black American and my African, you know, and sort of going back and forth with that. And I just remember when I was younger that this issue about generational baggage really (laughs) shaped my idea about what it meant to be African because my father came from a different generation. So he came in the 1980s, was getting his PhD in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is geographically in the southern regions of the U.S. And I remember him telling me just stories about how he was trying to rent an apartment and couldn't because he was a um, black man mm, and he had to my get... mom had a similar experience in <laughs> yeah. Paris mm. Mm-hmm, yeah and he told one of his white female friends and she didn't believe him and so she actually went with him one day to try to find an apartment and saw for herself that he couldn't get one and so she ended up helping him out by putting her name on the on the lease. They, they arranged something. He had this particular perspective about what it meant to be African in the U.S., particularly in the South of the U.S. And so I really grew up with this very conservative and rigid understanding of what it meant to be African. And it was one of those situations where the neighborhood I grew up in was predominantly white, but I spent half my year living with Cameroonians from the particular part of the country that I am from. And so what would happen was over the summertime, over the holidays, we would go and stay with other Cameroonians in the U.S. for those long stretches of time. And we were growing up with other kids who've been born in Cameroon, but were living in the U.S. Our parents, you know, had arrived in the 80s, 90s. And so it was just a very interesting interesting experience in which, you know, I just ended up often identifying more with being African. But I didn't grow up with this dilemma of I didn't see 
people of color be successful in different careers or, or engage in different forms of, you know, jobs. Because I saw that in the Cameroonian aunties and uncles that I grew up with. And so I just had this really rigid and strict perspective. And I remember where I realized that, you know, I really had to make my own understanding what it meant to be Black or what it meant to be African in the U.S. when I got my first teaching position and they asked me for a photo. And, you know, those who are close to me know that I love love African fabric. I love African yes. clothes. I have a whole closet That was one full. of my questions, which is <laughs> for every appearance or anything that you do, you're always dressed in African dress. And I was going to ask your, your reason for that, bearing in mind that you were born in Cameroon, but you grew up in the US. So you, you spent more, more time in the US than you have done in Cameroon. So yeah, and there are specific reasons why I'm, I'm really into that, into the African fabric, but I, I had taken a professional photo of myself wearing my favorite African fabric at the time that one of my aunts in Cameroon had given to me. So this fabric really meant a lot to me, but it also had this professional look to it, but it was a Cameroonian outfit. So I had professional photos taken and I remember when I showed it to my father and, and he said, you know, this might get you in trouble at work. You know, you might want to stay on the safer side and wear Western attire because his experience uh, someone who was also a professor and going through the tenure track process was very fraught with issues of race and his African identity. And so he was really putting a lot of the, his experiences on me, right? And he was looking at that from what he went through. And I just remember thinking, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And I guess the the projection is a common issue, right? Culturally for us. Yes, yes. And I guess if you were to make a list, it's projection, speaking from their places of fear, and the list carries on. Sorry to interject, but I'll, oh, I'll no, no. finish your, your train of thought. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think I was just coming through at that time with a very different lens and very different experiences. And I just thought he had this fear that, you know, I would not be successful on the tenure track, the process you have to go through when you're a professor here. And because based on the attire that I wore and I went ahead and I submitted that picture and I used that as my main profile or my main professional picture for two or three years. And I never felt uncomfortable by it. I never felt that, you know, I would be judged in a particular way for it. But I was also of a different generation than my father, where he very much did feel judged, very much had to struggle with it. Yeah. The name of the game for them was blending in, right? For them, they had to blend in and fit in. Yes, yes. You know, and this also bled into my career choice. He and my uncles and aunts were of a generation where, you know, they could talk to you at length about French history and British history, 
but not do the same with African history. And so I remember him sort of expressing how flabbergasted he was when I decided to have a career, not only in history, but in African history. And it, to me, that really was that point in my life where I really felt the strong sense of motivation to carve my own understanding of what it means to be an African in the diaspora. And also, what does it mean to be Black as well? And so with you navigating this journey of, I guess, your own identity within the construct of the US and African, you know, let's speak about the elephant in the room, which is immigration, because immigration brings with it a unique construct to what your identity then becomes and how that shapes where you go. And I think for a long time, culturally, you are defined by what you do, what you have, how you dress. And I guess this is one of your research topics where it's around bodily practices and clothing and self-identity through you know, political actions and religious beliefs. That is usually the marker for us as a people on how to navigate these experiences. Now, throw in immigration, and then one starts to question, you know, what you wear. How does that define your identity? Because you now have a wider lens that can appreciate more than one way of dress. So I guess the question is, where does immigration sit in that journey? Yeah, it very much plays a prominent role in terms of one's experiences or or, or my own personal experience. And so we always had some sort of tie or maintained strong ties to Cameroon since we came to the U.S., whether that be, you know, these long phone conversations where everybody's shouting really loudly because, you know, one side can't hear you very well and you're buying phone cards and so on. And, you know, to really feeling life events across the ocean when family members die or when family and friends get married and and how you keep up with the news. For me, the issue of immigration is one in which it's complex because I was on a green card for a very, very long time. And so a green card is, you know, one of these statuses that you can have before you formally become a U.S. citizen. And I just remember feeling limited and a lot of things that I could do, you know, traveling, even in my own career, fellowships I could qualify for, travel money that I couldn't apply for because you have to be a U.S. citizen. And so I I remember early on really using a lot of my own, you know, resources if I could in order to access certain travel experiences that I needed to be a part of for my own research. So immigration was always something that was absolutely shaping my life. And it also shaped my life in terms of who I communicated with. So when I was an undergraduate student, I had this group of friends, which people called the United Colors of Benetton, which I think was a clothing line. Mm, we were all yes, different. it was. <laughs> that, was <laughs> that was my high 
high school group as well. We were all from different places. Literally, we could be an ad. Yeah. Yeah. And then we exchange, you know, bad words. So we would be using, you know, different languages and, and, and terms when we were out in public as like, you know, code. So people can always understand what we were referencing. And at the same time, I had this core group of friends that were from all different countries of the world. But I also had another group of friends that were all Africans, specifically Nigerians. And so I hung out with them a lot because there was always something going on. There was always a wedding. There was always a baby shower. There was always, you know, a big celebration for a baby who turned two or three years old. We love ceremonies. (laughs) Ceremonies. Yes. And we are all undergraduate students who don't have that much money. Right. And so we would just show up. Goodness. Those are good meals. Yes. And eat and party and dance and meet people. But there was always someone who knew the bride or groom or their host. But we would show up in, you know, in large numbers. And one of the things that... I quickly became excited by was that for every event, my friends had different styles of clothes. It really, I mean, I loved African fabric and styles up until that point, but that's really where my passion for it just was cemented. And so for all these different events, we would exchange clothes. And then when I started really going to Cameron Moore to do research, I would have clothes made there. I would make sure I'd have enough for, you know, maybe a a season of, you know, weddings. And that's really where I became extremely obsessed with fabric, fabric from Cameroon, from Nigeria, from Mali, Uh, because I, I was really going to all these different spaces in which I was just, you know, I was seeing women dressed up really well, but in different styles and representing themselves in their own unique ways. And so once I started, you know, looking at these different fabrics and and how they can be integrated into my own closet, I then started to go to Cameroon with my own designs and, you know, how I wanted my particular dress and outfit. And the styles I was taking were from different parts of the continent. So the cut and the fabric and so on. But I realized in Cameroon one day that people can mistake your identity based on the fabric that you're wearing. And so I had designed this fabulous two-piece outfit, but the fabric was from Senegal. And I remember walking outside one day and someone talking to me and assuming that I was a foreigner in terms of foreigner from another Yeah, African because of country, your dress. Yeah. Because of the pattern of my outfit. And it, it was a very interesting conversation. Mm, yeah. And and I guess where we differ in because you know, it's usually, you know, formal dress. And there's always this discussion. I don't know if you've seen the meme go around about, you know, someone turning up in like, I think it's a man in, I guess, what would be formal dress African in his Agbara is what we'll call it in Nigeria. And it's kind of like, oh, but you turned up in your nightgown kind of thing. I don't know if you've seen that meme. No, I have not yet. And there are aspects of that that are concerning because it loses its significance of what that dress actually signifies. And and I love that you touched on the fact that, you know, clothing for us is not just clothing. And even with the influence of another culture, I still see Ankara and our fabrics as beautiful because they have meaning to them. 
and they have symbolic meaning that extends beyond you know what the print says but even just the community or the sense of community that is felt as a result of being in company with others sharing the same fabric you know those then leave you with emotions right like you know the ashura b concept of you know showing out for your friends or showing out for your family and and seeing the numbers of people sharing a fabric to move on to i guess from fabric into i guess the the feminist part of your work and talk about you know we've seen black lives matter we've also seen you know i guess with your us influence you know kamala harris take up being you know the first woman of color as as the vice president of the united states but in between that is i guess a feminist conversation around black women's lives matter and this is from every statistic to you know maternal mortality to how we are in relationship to you know gender pay differences which extend into racial pay differences and i guess the the black woman is seen as a double minority oh yes i saw i did see this very insightful meme that said to be a black woman is to be black twice yeah cuz you're not only then dealing with the gender issue but you're also dealing with the race issue and i just wanted to touch on i guess your work around feminism as you know the editorial board member of feminist africa you journal for women's history and you sit as a board member for the coordinating council for women in history and if there was anything you could lend from your knowledge to any black woman who finds herself swimming against the current whether that be in her career choice whether that be in her identity because it's one thing to get woke and step away right from the current as it were or from the norm with the black women's lives matter where does that sit yeah feminism blackness identity there you know they they all have this very intimate tie and connections and i see it everywhere <laughs> um, in the media social media handles in my own personal life and i did want to add that one of the things that i've been really enjoying in a lot of these discussions about blackness and feminism is also this acknowledgement about how even within their own race or within black communities women still face challenges and obstacles because of black men or a black men who are also challenging what they're doing my next question is so going down that path i think in considering a black women's lives matter and i think this has been a discussion by a lot of i would say black feminists in history where as you rightly pointed out there is a correlation between how our men treat us and so then the world places value on that or places value on us based on that relationship but you know into things like mortality rates and some of the despicable stats when you look at the black woman globally the african black woman is right at the bottom of the totem pole yes and that in itself is worrying um i i don't know if you could speak to any stats or observations in your work and and also your work of understanding women in history where we differ why is it different for us 
particularly when it comes to feminism, I always like to emphasize that there are different understandings of it, which is why I use the plural term, so feminisms. And then when we get to the African continent, then we have different forms of African feminisms, or you know, also called by um, different names with slightly different understandings. But what I saw in my research and what I see in my life in the day-to-day lives of my aunts and uncles and family members and friends is one in which understandings about gender equality is very different than understandings of gender equality, let's say in the West, in the US, for example. So naturally, understandings of feminisms itself are shaped by different understandings of gender norms. And one thing that just really, really popped out in my work, and I think I tried to ignore it for a while, you know, because I didn't think, not that it wasn't important, but it wasn't really shouting at me, was that the women that I look at in Cameroon in the 60s and early 1970s were engaging in these really subtle ideas or actions about gender equality. What I'm saying is they weren't just, you know, kicking down doors, you know, with with, with But you can't be. You yeah, can't be. Exactly. You'll exactly. be considered wild. Exactly. You'll be wild. You'll be wild, <laughs> untempered. It's not a woman's place. But they were making changes. That's the thing. I think that if we, if we look at it as they're not kicking down doors, then they're not making changes. I remember I gave a talk at an unknown, very fancy university. And in the Q&A, someone in the audience said that they just didn't believe that the women that I was researching were embracing ideas about gender equality or embracing ideas about feminism because they weren't being militant. <laughs> I mean, that's just sort of an example of how there's different understandings about feminisms across the Atlantic. So the woman that that I particularly focus on in my work, what I find fascinating is that they're engaging these subtle ideas about, I would say, feminist actions, because at the time, they're not identifying themselves as feminisms or as feminists. So I can't, you know, put that label on them, you know, but I say in my work, they're engaging in feminist actions. And what those feminist actions look like is based on their local understandings about women's roles and men's roles. And what was fascinating was that I was looking at the statistics for the amount of girls that started entering schools, young women that were engaging in formal sports organization, women that were running for parliament, their numbers were slowly going up. Now they weren't, you know, rapidly going up, but they were increasing. So change was being done. And that's something that I wanted to highlight and to emphasize in my own work that, you know, these feminist actions and and how women make change or how women express, you know, political grievance or political power differs across the globe and even differs within one country. And so the women I'm particularly looking at are, these are women that are part of formal women's organizations. It's a very different conversation when you now look at women who are engaging in what we would call you know, more traditional women's organizations um, and how they express their political grievance in very different ways. I think there's something in, we haven't used the word activism, but the understanding of, I guess, 
the breadth of activism that can take place, which, like you say, sometimes could, could come delivered with sugar and honey and can be effective, can create change. But I wonder why specifically for African women, it is less likely so that we are overt about our views. Okay, I don't think that's necessarily true across the board. General statement, I admit. Yeah, I, I think that it depends on the type of tool that said woman or, or said group of women employ. And this is why I wanted to emphasize particularly, I'm not shy about emphasizing this, that in my work, I'm looking at politically elite women. So they're part of formal women's organizations that are often tied to the government. Now, women, African women are overt and are, are very vocal in different ways and in different spaces and in different circumstances. And so when I compare the women that I'm looking at who are part of women's organizations attached to male-dominated political party and how they navigate their political power, I see something very different when I then look at traditional women's organizations and how they express their political grievance in very public, expressive ways. And when they're mad, you know, whole towns can be shut down, the economy stops, you know, you have situations of sex striking um, across whole towns. I mean, to me, that's not being subtle. That is being very loud. Who gets to express their political opinion or power really depends on these various factors. Now, age is definitely something that plays a role in that because in a lot of these traditional women's organizations, you have post-menopausal women and they access power in a very different way than their younger female counterparts. And so age also plays a role in terms of Perhaps, you know, how vocal you can be and um, how many towns you can shut down. I'm in agreement with you in a formal setting. Where I'm not in agreement is when it comes to, I guess, the bare basics in our personal lives. Where actually, you know, they, they always say everything begins at home, right? Yeah. <laughs> and where we start to view how our societies view women who then become feminists to that extent. Okay. Yeah. So this is where we don't disagree. I agree with you on this. Absolutely. Because your feminism can be as far as your career in politics, but dare it transition into your personal life or dare it transition into your place in society as a female, which leads me to the next thing, which is our bodies, the African woman's body. Oh, yes, yes. So, yeah, we do not disagree on this. So, I remember. No, because you were very <laughs> emphatic with your response. And I was like, hold on a minute here. Did I just miss this? Like, yes, we're allowed to be feminists in careers and in politics, but dare us be feminists in our homes, in societal settings where then we are females and then there are males and our bodies. And these are the things that are most actually defining of a woman how she sees and views herself, her, her authentic self, not the version that the world creates or not the version that her job gives her, not the version that a title gives her or doctor or, or accountant or lawyer gives her, but the real version of her, which is vulnerable. Oh, yeah, yeah. So probably already know this is something that's part of 
your daily life and my daily life. And I, I remember after, you know, giving a, a, a very you know, a passionate lecture about women and feminism in Africa in one of my classes. And, you know, we had about 10 minutes left and my students wanted to know about my personal experiences. And I wasn't ready for that question. And, I, you know, and I talked about how when I get on that plane and enter Cameroon, it's not that I'm a completely different person, but I'm more self-aware about the differences and ideas about gender. Like, like immediately as soon as that plane lands, because you're absolutely right. I mean, so it's one thing for these, you know, issues to be part of your research, but you can't exactly copy and paste it into your everyday life. <laughs> and I certainly can't do that when I go to Cameroon. The question is why? Because shouldn't that be, and again, yes, we're all multi-hyphenated and we're all multifaceted, but shouldn't that, because this then brings me to the cultural norms and values, shouldn't that value be far-reaching beyond your professional career? And again, it comes back to the, how is identity now defined by the jobs that we do or the titles that we have, but somehow we're not allowed to have identity as people in that way. Because, you know, for a long time, even in the arts, you know, the female form is a point of discussion. You know, there is the music videos now and all of that stuff. But I think within African culture, there are songs written about women's bottoms, women's figures. You know, there is this dictation by the African men. And then I guess segue into sexuality, how it's okay for a man to have sexuality, but a woman not. I mean, in my personal experience, there are some spaces in which, or boundaries that I will overtly challenge and push back on. And there's some that I don't. And so for me, it's always been about what really matters or what issue do I want to, you know, challenge. I'm not saying that, you know, as soon as I land in Cameroon, I'm a completely different person. There are areas that I definitely do challenge. But at the same time, I also, in my personal perspective and opinion, feel that there's some, you know, cultural norms that I want to respect. And and that has to do with just, you know, longstanding cultural values about certain actions that women or men can untake. A lot of it also has to do with, you know, generation, you know, and, and having respect for my uncle, the patriarch of the family. Uh, but there are other areas in which uh, of my personal life, particularly, that I will definitely challenge. And I will admit that I, you know, probably am the black sheep of, of my family. But, you know, that's what happens when you do want to challenge gender boundaries or challenge the ways in which an African woman should live her life. You then have to be prepared for, you know, Stand in the, the rain alone. Standing in the rain alone. Standing in the rain alone. Absolutely. And 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 I have been through that. And so it's it's just being confident in who you are. But then confidence comes from acceptance, right? Confidence comes from that connection and acceptance. And I think where we now start to speak of beauty and finding beauty in your own self and walking your own path in the rain, you know. How do you start to redefine that for yourself? You know, I think you talk about the Baha'i 
you know, the tenets of, of that religion in your work and how that can be used or transposed into this experience. But when we start talking about defining beauty, you know, in your experience, you've been able to go, this is how I do it. I wear my African dress and this is beautiful to me. But to a listener who is in this tug of war, who has this woke version deep down inside burning in, where do you begin, I guess, also, just historically, where have women begun to start to carve out that space for themselves? Well, for me, it really was connected to my female family members who, you know, have carved their own path <laughs> and were the black sheep of their generation and seen how independent they were and their life decisions to get divorced, you know, and to go through that storm of having had a traditional wedding and a, and a court wedding and a church wedding and then going through a divorce, right? And, and so it was me looking at the those aunties and how, you know, independent they were and who they were, but also in their clothing style and how they lived their lives. But it was also in looking at history because, you know, growing up, I, I don't, you know, when we learn about history, w women are not the dominant voices. And so when I was conducting my d dissertation field research and, and then also starting, you know, my research for my second book project, you know, I just kept just finding stories about women who were very independent. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is the 50s and 60s, you know, what am I complaining about? You know, looking around, why can't I just go ahead and just be myself? And so I think it begins with of just accepting who you are. And so for me, it was, okay, am I Black American? Am I, am I African? Like, what am I? And I just, you know, at some point it was just, I'm both. I'm, I am who I am. I can't really, you know, fabricate anything else. <laughs> and to actually be proud of that because there's that uniqueness. But at the same time, I'm also aware that, you know, I, I might be following non-traditional paths when it comes to what many people believe is ideal African womanhood and, and trying to do things my own way and, you know, and perhaps look differently in my own way. Yeah, I guess, you know, like you, I'm an advocate for mental health. I'm an advocate for you know, giving yourself space to grow emotionally too. And there's a beautiful exercise that I love, which is, you know, the I am exercise, which starts off with just very basic things, you know, what exactly the things that you can define about yourself, you know, I am, you know, if you're a mother, I'm a teacher, I'm a, you know, and then you start to work through into more deeper feelings, you know, like I'm loving as a way just to connect back to that. I want to end on a, and I know that this episode's slightly different to any of the others, but I, I wanted us to talk more around your work and also weave your journey in. But the decision to become a scholar. Now, you know, question mark, I put here a creative scholar, question mark, you know, is is that the, you know, and, and that decision, you know, your father is a finance professor, you know, you, you come from a, a line of academia, but entering into it as a choice. And I say that because I found space in academia recently, guest lecturing, but how, how did you make that decision 
to go into it in the way that you've you have well i i made that decision by not listening to other people and forging ahead we all need teachers right so like it's almost (laughs) like if there's no one teaching how will anyone learn to be an accountant doctor or anything and for me I, i i've talked in the past about how i ended up in graduate school and, and and the topics that I had originally chosen. And, and you know, I, I was really into reading <laughs> throughout my life and, and really into watching history documentaries. And I had really got into an American history at, um, when I had when I was finishing my undergraduate degree. And it was particularly the, the American Civil War. I liked the goriness of the um, topic. I liked the issues about race. And that's what originally what I wanted to focus on when I went to graduate school. But within, I would say the first three months, I became very uncomfortable with that path because I was looking at the history academic and the topics that people were researching, who was representing who, you know, and I'll be very blunt. I thought, okay, here I am, an African woman working on the history of the American Civil War, and I have no idea about African women's history. I just, I was very uncomfortable and I switched as fast as I could. (laughs) And, And when I switched, it just became just, you know, I was just very, very hungry for the knowledge. And I just consumed as much as I could consume and have as much conversations that I could have with different scholars of the field. And so, you know, that's that's really how I entered it. It wasn't pre-planned. <laughs> um, and even the topic that I chose for my recently published book, you know, I had an, an, an idea, but certain things happened that changed the project in a way that I absolutely love the way that it changed. But I, I also wanted to address the issue about being creative. I remember being in graduate school and just being really intimidated by my classmates and how eloquent they were in um, speaking and how much knowledge they had. And so I, I just felt like I that I had to have this particular professional academic identity. Meanwhile, you know, on, on the sideline, I'm someone who loves writing poetry, short short stories, arts and crafts. Like every year I'm the person who gives I'm very serious about my holiday cards, which I make by hand. But those were to me always supposed to be two different worlds. And so I really started to blend those worlds together when I started to teach and was trying to engage my students in different ways. I didn't want to be the the professor that just stood up there and just lectured. I wanted to engage them in different things and comic books, documentaries. And so through teaching, I started to start to look at my work in a more creative way. And I thought, if I'm using my creative side to teach, why can't I do that when I write or in my own research or even the things that I do on the side that are connected to my career? And so that's when I started to fall in love with giving guest talks, you know, and and I used to give guest talks on just my just research, but now I'm giving them about, you know, fashion and blackness and race and body politics. And that's when I started to really, you know, I I did a consulting job with a German-based nonprofit organization that put together a comic book about Cameroonian women's political participation. And so I was consulting on that. And I realized, you know, I could only really be happy in my career if I was also integrating my creative side. The things that bring you joy. Mm-hmm. You're also the winner of the Francis Richardson Keller Sierra Prize. 
in and amongst all of the things that we've talked about today, which is incredible. You're giving a talk in July, I think, on fashion and blackness in the diaspora, an African woman's tale of race and body politics. Hopefully we can tune in somewhere on the interweb at some point to get hold of that. But where can people find you? Oh, they can find me via email. I do not have any social media handles, apologies, but email is definitely the best way to uh, reach out. And then you've got your website? Yes. And I also have my website, uh, JacquelineBethelMugwe.com. And on there, I, you know, just talk a bit more about who I am and my own uh, research. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jacqueline, for joining us on today's episode. It's been incredible just chatting about identity and and being an African female. Thank you for having me and for hosting and putting together this amazing podcast. um, Thank you. I've been listening to the episodes while I was working out. Oh, wow. Thank you. (laughs) We've made a workout list, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started.